Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by David Spence. David is the CEO of the Scottish Outdoor Education Centres, an independent charity that provides quality learning opportunities for schools and groups all over the country. David, very warm welcome to to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hello Scott, thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure David. Now the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership so if we sort of dive straight in and look at that word leader just on its own first and foremost I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates. Yes well it's it's uh Interesting. We, we, we work, um, I can just presage that by saying that we work with 12,000 children a year. And a lot of that is about developing the qualities and skills that young people need for their future. That's what we're interested in doing. As you'd expect, as outdoor centers, we do have sailing, climbing, canoeing, and all that sort of stuff. But what we're interested in is what young people learn from those experiences. So today we're very skills-oriented uh, we're looking at developing communication skills, teamwork, problem solving, decision making, um, personal and, and, and social development. We're looking at qualities as well, such as confidence, resilience, adaptability, can do growth mindset, enhance motivation, and things like that. I consider all of these elements to be composite elements of leaders. I don't know of a leader who is very uh, good if they're poor at communication skills or teamwork, mm. and I don't. And I think they have to have confidence and resilience uh, and adaptability if they're to be leaders as well. So I think that leadership is something uh, that can be learned. I think it's something that we can enable young people, empower young people to develop these essential qualities and skills for their future. I think that's right, uh, David, for sure. I think there are some qualities like maybe a certain self-motivation and a certain drive that do sort of come naturally. But I think, again, you can nurture that out of people, can't you, and understand what makes them tick. And that's an important part of people management, which under the umbrella of leadership is another very important quality, I think. That's right. That's right. I think, uh, you know, too often in the past, uh, you know, we we came from an era of... um, uh, character building <laughs> and mm. it was felt that it was something that you either had or you uh, but for the most of majority of people that was just not possible um, but I, I think that's different today I think if we start with young people where they are we can bring them on to be capable of doing all manner of things and an important part of leadership as well, of course, is being able to learn. Um, you say that leadership can be learned, and I think it's fair to say that we're going through one of the greatest learning curves of our time at the moment, a very tragic and a very challenging time with the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic. And interestingly as well, um, when um, you wrote in the uh, the parliamentary review earlier on uh, this year, uh, David, indispensable guide to uh, best practice, of course, with regards to the Scottish Outdoor Education Centres, you said that there is a need for change. And now change is essentially being forced upon everybody, isn't it, in the UK? And with regards to adaptability and flexibility, two other important qualities of leadership that you mentioned earlier on, how has it been adapting to this current situation for yourselves? Because I can imagine it's been quite a tremendous challenge um, on your um, side of things as well. Well, yes, um, we're all being forced to change, aren't we? And um, it's accelerating trends that have affected every sector, including our own. Um, you know, uh, 
there are there are the immediate issues to do with COVID and post COVID nineteen uh, responses, uh, and then there are bigger um, issues behind things like climate heating and technological development and globalization. These are things that are forcing change at a rapid pace, and they have not gone away. They have subsided while we deal with COVID nineteen, mm. but they're still still there. So, so I mean, one of the things is that uh, I think that uh, uh, we we weren't quite uh, on a on a sustainable basis. I think because lots of outdoor centres were closing, um, and we have an opportunity as with the change. It's, it's a threat. Yes, there are lots of threats, very serious threats to young people from COVID nineteen, from from fear of the virus itself, uh, to to the the, the the unknown of returning to schools that they don't quite remember being that that way mm. uh, with social distancing and things like that so there are are, are still 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 changes uh, to be dealt with and um, but we also have to look for the opportunities in change don't we I mean when I was talking about those skills for young people uh, and we were talking about preparing them for their future and with all these seeming threats around us we also have to remember that there are opportunities of change as well. So one of the opportunities that I'm looking for is that our sector and others can be put on a more sustainable basis. What that means is that we have to do things differently. We were struggling as a sector um, with, with centres closing. Uh, it looked as if COVID-19 was going to bring that to a head. It still is. We've lost six outdoor centres in Scotland out of a total of about 45, uh, 43 sorry, in the last uh, 12 months. So it's a trend that is very clear. And if we revert back to what we know, we will just end up disappearing. You know, we have to do things differently and, and we have to look for these opportunities. Mm. And there are positives to come out of this, aren't there, by way of opportunity, but also in a sense, I mean, we, of course, we mentioned character building in a negative light earlier on. But I think the experience of people having to go beyond their comfort zones and really bring the best out of themselves in this time of adversity, take on their own form of leadership, that's going to benefit them as well, isn't it, in the long run? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I was a bit disparaging about character building, I remember. In my, my first climbing experiences with a mountain rescue team, um, we were put over the edge of a cliff with a rope on, and, and it was determined that if we if we started crying, we wouldn't be climbers. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Pretty dramatic way of going about things, isn't it? But um, it's surprising when we, we see when we're working with young people all the time that just by starting where where they are, uh, encouraging them to an, engage in challenge positively. Uh, and do that over several occasions during a, a program of activities over a week or several days over several months, then the young people start to realize that they can do more than they first thought they could, you know, and they surprise themselves and others. And really, <coughs> excuse me, that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about changing the self-perception of children and their self-belief. Um, it's very easy to dash a child's confidence in seconds. And uh, we know that our young people have a, a crisis of confidence. Uh, this COVID uh, situation has not helped us with that regard. They have been caught at home and they're seeing strange things. They're seeing adults, for example, saying, we don't know. We don't know what about, about the, uh, the virus. We don't know how it works. We don't know when we're going to get back to work. It's very disturbing for a young person to hear adults. They, they don't know quite like that. You know, they're seeing all these these strange things. So, 
um, yeah, we, there is a need for us to focus very quickly, I think, on getting young people to uh, engage with each other again, to socialize, to play, even if it is at a distance. These things are going to be essential because they've missed out with them for, uh, for, missed them for four months. Um, uh, there's so many health and well-being issues around COVID that that we need to address and getting young people outdoors is the safest place for them to be at the moment. Mm. But after this, after this, you know, initial period of looking at the health and wellbeing, I think we have to move on very quickly. We have to adapt again because we'll be looking at how young people have been affected, those with additional needs, those from black and ethnic communities, for example, uh, the, uh, young people with on the autistic spectrum. These people are going to need an awful help. And then within a very few short months, we could be looking at a major uh, unemployment uh, statistics uh, that will be impacting on young people in particular. So we do need to start thinking about uh, ahead of then about how we can develop young people to transition into work and the skills and qualities that they will need for that, that uh, for them to get into work in the future. And I think with this renewed focus on mental health and well-being that's come about during this time, that's hopefully something that we don't lose sight of. But prior to the COVID-19 pandemic as well, I think there was an issue, um, especially in the sense of young people, that they were becoming afraid almost of failure because they were afraid of criticism and afraid of feeling like they'd let people down. Whereas I think failure and learning from mistakes in a way is a crucial part of one's development and a crucial part of leadership as well. So we need to be putting an arm around youngsters as well, don't we, and saying that that don't be afraid to make mistakes and embrace it as a learning opportunity. I think that's hugely important, isn't it? Yes, I think that's right. I think we, we you know we, we encourage young people to to just um, reach beyond their comfort zone. Uh, that's the thing about the outdoor, uh, some of the outdoor activities we do. we do. We use lots of different activities. We might use environmental activities or leisure activities, games. But sometimes we use challenge, um, and um, that's the. I think it's quite—it can be a bit underestimated. Uh, it's quite skillful to take a young person, perhaps a vulnerable young person, and enable them to do things beyond their comfort zone. Uh, they're obviously going to be reluctant to try it, and and you know, working with with uh, the others in their group, encouraging them, motivating them, it is possible to get them to go a little bit further every time, and that's how we start to build confidence back into young people. Um, there is there there will be there will be failures along the way, but that's no big deal. We all fail to make progress, uh, and it's it's about that narrative that we wrap around those experiences uh, that, that I think enables young people to step outside themselves to do things that they they uh, didn't think possible. I think um, that's completely right, David. And um, we will be hearing um, very shortly from former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett on the uh, the podcast episode. But interestingly, back in the parliamentary review that was released in the earlier part of this year, um, David Blunkett wrote, going forward, what the British education sector needs is a positive way of linking business and education through political decision making as a progressive way forward. Now, um, third sector residential outdoor learning providers like yourselves, David, are a small but rather significant subset of education. And I think there is a role for yourselves to play in making that vision possible, isn't there? That's right, Scott. It's small but significant. I think that's really quite uh, important. Um, the, 
the opportunities that are emerging at the present time are about how we create a new public policy architecture, how we develop new relationships with with other actors, including outside uh, um, and, and, and unable to get involved with young people in the way they perhaps hope they would. Um, lots of uh, there's lots of evidence from business networks. I think that the skills that I referred to earlier are the skills that they say they're looking for in the future workforce. Mm. And so I think there is a, a natural alliance between the third sector providers and businesses and commercial interests to, to, to develop young people, particularly in terms of transition to work, but even before then, so that they're on a uh, pathway of skill development throughout their school career. Um, yes, and I think that there is a place for politicians to act brokers for those relationships um, so so uh, yeah <laughs> sorry Scott I've um, lost it that's all banging through me a minute there um, no that's absolutely fine um, I completely understand uh, where you're coming from um, in that uh, sense uh, David I think um, politicians they're very much in the uh, the public eye um, always never mind um, at the moment when leadership of the Covid situation has come under immense scrutiny um, so it's important for them to of course um, not lose sight of the importance of their role as well and act as brokers as you say for such partnerships to really blossom I think um, that is something that can really make a huge difference within the education sector especially isn't it as you rightfully say there Yes, I think it's a challenge for people. You know, leadership is also about letting people um, do the job themselves. Um, mm. it, it, having confidence in yourself to let other, people's, other people make the running. The third sector has done an enormous amount of uh, work in the, in the last 10 years. Um, we're fully bought into child, uh, well, child and youth policies. In Scotland, that's Gurfect. We're interested in we're delivering educational outcomes that teachers want. You know, we are very much a professional set of um, organizations these days. And uh, there is a huge opportunity, I think, for us to step up to this this plate. Already in Scotland, for example, in terms of residential experience, we provide over 70% of the bed spaces. We do the lion's share of delivery in terms of getting young people out of doors and active uh, in, in the outdoors. Um, and I think it's important that um, we all look to see where we can actually make a a significant contribution. Um, perhaps it's for um, politicians to see that they don't have to try and do everything themselves through the uh, standard uh, government, local government route, but they can allow other people to engage as well. And thinking about the long-term future uh, now, David, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, what do you actually envision for the next year as we move through the COVID-19 situation and into the new normal and begin to adapt to that and the challenges that that will bring? Well, I think we're in a very um, challenging situation. I'm a little bit Janus faced about it. I can see that there's enormous potential for the work that we do. And I think that we could be delivering the work, I think, Young people need the work that we do for decades to come. But at the same time, it is not, uh, I'm afraid it is is not unrealistic to think of worst case scenarios at the present time. And um, we, 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 uh, I wish I could feel a little bit more confident that we'll still be around in a few months' time. Um, 
So, so a bit Jane is faced about it at the moment, Scott. I think that's essentially a sense of caution, uh, to be honest, more than anything else, uh, David. I think it's all well and good being optimistic and speculating about the positive things that might come in the future. But it's another, of course, just being a little bit apprehensive about the fact that there are still so many variables. And um, even though we can speculate now about the future, but we won't know until, of course, the time has passed and we understand what's happened in the time between, I think it would actually be fantastic and really informative from a listener's perspective to perhaps catch up and have you back on the programme at some point in the next year, just to discuss what has changed in the time between and understand how the um, Scottish Outdoor Education Centres are getting on themselves as well. Well, thank you, Scott. That's, that would be an interesting discussion, wouldn't it? Um, it would, for sure. It's not, uh, not run its course yet. So mm. I look forward to that. Likewise, uh, David. And um, until we do touch base um, in the uh, the future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. And it has been an absolute pleasure having you join us on the programme today. And I really do appreciate the time taken to do that. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was David Spence speaking, the CEO of the Scottish Outdoor Education Centres. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding various positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about 
more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment 
of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can 
have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on 
the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need 
careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, 
then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full 
The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, 
listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.